We found love right where we are. Arranged love blossoming. Tudors and Stewart's edition. Welcome to If It Ain't Baroque podcast. This is the finale of our Valentine series, and we're going out with a bang. We're looking at Tudor and Stuart couples today, and these couples were brought together by an arranged marriage. Despite the fact that they didn't choose each other initially, both parties learned to care for their partner, and the feelings only grew stronger. We have great historians with us today. First, Nathan Amin will tell us about the legendary marriage between Elizabeth of York and Henry VII. Then, Leia Redmond Chang will spill the secrets of a union that has been out of the history spotlight, that of Philip II of Spain and Elizabeth de Valois. And lastly, Carol Ann Lloyd will take us through the married life of Charles I and Queen Henrietta Maria. Now, let's go back to Tudor times. When Henry VII gets the throne, he marries Elizabeth of York. It's an arranged marriage. Was that a good arrangement? I think it probably ended up being the most successful royal marriage we've ever had, or certainly up until the recent Queen's marriage to Prince Philip. It was an arranged marriage. It was intended to unite the Warren houses of York and Lancaster. That's not something that was made up by Shakespeare. That was very much Henry's intention during the day. Hence why we have the Tudor rose, the white rose and the red rose combining. Now, we don't know much about the actual marriage. It was conducted as soon as Henry got his papal dispensation through to marry Elizabeth of York. According to his court biographer, Bernard Andre, he does write, however, that gifts freely flowed on all sides and were showered on everyone, whilst feasts, dances and tournaments were celebrated all around the kingdom. I can imagine we've all experienced royal weddings in the last decade. People would have had a party for the reason of having a party, whether or not they were vested in the royal marriage itself. Uh, Andre also says a great gladness filled the kingdom. And that might be true. I mean, if this is a marriage that has been designed to end war, then people might finally be, now might be the time that we finally get peace in England. Their son comes very quickly in the marriage. Very, very quickly, the first son. And they call him Arthur. There's a, a lot of good symbols there. Yeah, I mean, obviously there we are. What Henry's trying to do very quickly, he's not only set out his stall using Welsh history, but he's also telling everyone a second Arthurian golden age is coming. I think that's a very strong name that he uses. Obviously, the second golden age didn't come, but it certainly was a good name to start off this marriage with. They then have some more children. What were they like as parents? I mean, they they do seem to be good parents. There is a suggestion Elizabeth was a, a loving and you know, a comparatively hands-on mother for mm. the age. You know, she often used to be around the Royal Nursery in in Eltham. There is quite a poignant picture that was painted shortly after she died, and it's Henry himself receiving a book, a, a work from some writer. But in the background is the empty bed of his recently deceased wife, Elizabeth, and all on the bed crying is a small child, and that is the future Henry VIII. And he is, you know, he's breaking his heart on his mother's bed. And I think that's a very poignant insight into how she must have been as a mother. Mm-hmm. Young Henry, the future Henry VIII, clearly loved his mother and missed her a lot. And I think that's probably quite telling in how hands on she was. As for Henry, there are good sources to suggest that he was a good father. Um, in as much as, you know, a, a royal king could be. 
far from him being a miser like he's often accused of being, Henry was certainly avaricious. He tried to get as much money from people as he could, but he spent it very well. In his chamber books, which are a list of his payments, there are regular payments he makes for his wife, for her to wear furs and jewels, and there's also many payments to his children where he buys them musical instruments or he buys them toys. You know, these are copious payments we have of Henry treating his children. He also likes to play cards, and he did used to sometimes lose money to his wife and his children. Um, <laughs> so he certainly wasn't a very a very good gambler. There is a brilliant quote by one ambassador visiting who claims that young Arthur Tudor, the Prince of Wales, he has a magnificent guide in his father. No son could wish for a better father, the ambassador says. And this is again a reference to Henry Tudor and how he must have been a fairly hands-on son teaching his children lessons. Yeah. Oh, of course. Now, how, how we know Henry VIII turned out, I always say you can never punish the father necessary for the sins. But I like to think that Henry VII was a self-made man and Henry VIII ended up being a spoiled brat hmm. and this wouldn't be the first example it definitely not the last example of a self-made father having a spot brat of a child who inherits the the family kingdom yeah so arthur passes away and there's a there's this beautiful story which i love about henry the seventh and elizabeth about how they console each other yeah i mean this is probably the most touching insight we have to any medieval marriage arthur dies and the king's council councillors are too scared to tell him. They send a little friar in to wake up the king. When the friar wakes him up with the words, if we have received good things by the hand of God, why should we not receive evil? And Henry knows straight away, uh-oh, my boy's gone. He goes, wait there, monk. I want to send for my wife first. We will take the news together. Elizabeth comes, and they hear the news of their son dying. Now, Henry is completely broken down by this. He has this, he, his plan was to establish the entire dynasty on Arthur's shoulders. Hence the name, the great King Arthur II was coming through these lands. And he collapses in, in grief. Now, Elizabeth comforts him, um, we're told, with full, great, and constant, comfortable words. And she tells him, husband, we are young. We will have more children. Were you not just an only son? And look at how great you did. Don't worry. Uh, and so on. And Henry is comforted. You know, his wife has spoken reason to him. He's comforted. She leaves and she goes back to her own chambers. But when she gets to her own chambers, we're told by a chronicler, the natural and motherly remembrance of that great loss smote her sorrowful to the heart and she collapses this time henry is sent for and he runs to the corridors and he takes her in his arms and they comfort each other you know just two grieving parents you know this might have been a union that was originally of political necessity and opportunism but it's clear that it had become a union of trust a union of fidelity and i would argue love that summer, they went on progress together and they visited Raglan Castle, which was where Henry had spent his childhood. And it's during this trip that she was already 
pregnant with another child. Sadly, the story would not have a happy ending. What's Henry like when Elizabeth passes? Well, I mean, if he had been inconsolable when his son dies, when his wife dies, for the first time in his reign, this resolute, resilient, redoubtable king physically and mentally collapses. Uh, He loses all of his noble demeanour and he's completely gone. He withdraws by himself to a private chamber and he wouldn't allow anyone to come to him for nearly six weeks. He just completely was a spent man. When he does finally emerge, there is a colder, a harder and a more ruthless man that does emerge. The last six years of his reign are very tough, not just for him, who is constantly ill after this period, but for the people of England. He now only has one son left. His wife's died and two sons have died. Henry knows he has to get his young son to adulthood or that boy would probably be killed very shortly thereafter. So it's tough for Henry. He starts to take everyone's money. He now makes himself richer than anyone so that he can protect the crown. But he has to live on. He has to. And every summer and every spring thereafter, to the end of his reign, people believe he's going to die because he's ill. But he keeps on rallying. He finally dies in 1509 when his son is 17 years old. Luckily, this is a strapping, big beast of a, of a youth. And that is, of course, Henry VIII. And Henry VIII is able to pick up the crown and go on. What I think is very touching about this story is that after Elizabeth dies in the town of London, where her brothers may have died all them years ago, Henry VII abandons the town of London as one of his royal palaces. He never goes back. I think that is quite a touching insight into the pain that he must have must have felt. Yeah. I always think it's quite strange because we, we always talk about Queen Victoria and her grief because it was... I mean, you can't get away from it. The woman made her whole career on that, to be honest. <laughs> but we don't talk about that when it comes to Henry. Do you think there's something in the fact that we don't like talking about men's emotions? I mean, it might be, but it might just be that no one's ever really paid much attention to him. I always I always say when I started on this journey in about 2009, there had been two or two books written about him in the previous hundred years, and they were they were fantastic, but they were academic texts. No one's really been bringing Henry to a popular audience in the way that they've brought Henry VIII mm. or Shakespeare brought Richard III. I mean, in that play, Richard III, Shakespeare discussed Richard III's grief. I don't think it's necessarily a, a an issue about male emotion, although it might be. I mean, at the end of the day, I don't really know much about anything. But with regards to this, I think it's just that no one really knows the story. Hopefully, people read my books and get to know a bit more of the story. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's fast forward a century and look at our next pairing Philip II of Spain and Elizabeth de Valois. Philip II is on his third marriage. And he's just come out of the marriage to Mary I of England, which did not go well. And he marries Elizabeth de Valois. How does this come into an arrangement? Who thinks this is a great idea? Because Spain and France are not friends. Right, no, they are not friends. They are not friends. 
So, but what's happened is that France and Spain have been fighting for so long that their treasuries are, you know, depleted. (laughs) Many, many people have died. And both Philip II of Spain and Henry II of France were feeling like they were fighting the wars of their ancestors, you know. Plus, there were other problems. You know, the the Reformation is really taking off and both of them want to concentrate on that. So it just seemed like it maybe was time to to call a truce. The marriage that was originally arranged was between Elizabeth de Valois, Henry II's daughter, and Don Carlos of Spain, which was Philip II's son. But then Mary of the First of England, who had been Philip II's wife, she, she dies. And so that leaves Philip free. And so he decides he's going to replace his son and marry Elizabeth himself. So he's about 20 years older than Elizabeth, hence the creepiness factor, as you said, (laughs) you know, because she's, you know, she's, she's 13 at the time of the marriage, 14 by the time she gets to Spain. And he has already been married twice. And like you said, the marriage to Mary Tudor didn't go well. And I often think that, you know, again, when we're learning history, we forget that This person, Philip II, is one person who is experiencing all of these things, the the marriage to Maria Manuela of Portugal, and then Mary Tudor, and then, you know, now he's in his 30s and he's going to marry Elizabeth of Valois. But his experience of those first two marriages, you know, carries forward like it would for any of us, right? We're, We're affected by them. And so, you know, He's just had this disastrous marriage with Mary the First of England. And, you know, it's kind of his fault that it was a disaster. But I don't know. Maybe they just weren't very compatible as people. You know, he obviously didn't seem to like Mary very much. You know, he he didn't really respect her. He couldn't seem to wait to get away from her. So when he first decides to marry Elizabeth, this is the first time he has married a woman of his own accord. Everything else has been arranged by his father. Mm. So this is the first marriage choice, you know, Philip is being his own man here. And as far as I can tell, at first, it's, you know, just completely political. Uh, One courtier did make a a very mean comment that at least with Elizabeth, he'd be marrying this calmly young woman instead of this old woman like he had had to marry with with Mary the First of England, which is really pathetic because I think Mary was 37. (laughs) She was not not old. But by the standards of the time, you know, Elizabeth is, is really just sort of blossoming. She's 13. You know, but he's sort of he's sort of ambivalent. He is incredibly respectful. You know, the the Spanish just have very high standards for respect, certainly in terms of how they treat women. So that's how you know that Philip really didn't like Mary the first of England because he wasn't very respectful to her. Philip is going to treat Elizabeth well, and and he does, but he's distant, you know, because she's just a child. She really is a child, you know, when she comes to Spain. And, and he's busy, you know, he's a workaholic. So he's, he's always, he's always working and he just kind of lets her do her thing. But he does ask his sister, Juana, who he, he loves very much to kind of take Elizabeth under her wing. And Juana does that. And, and Juana and Elizabeth become very, very good friends. There was something about Elizabeth that people found very charming. It wasn't like the kind of charming, she didn't have the sort of charm that Mary Queen of Scots had. It Mm. wasn't this kind of like dazzling 
command a room sort of charming. It was a gentle kind of quiet charming. Over and over people say this, that she has this sort of gentleness. And I think Philip loved this. This is exactly the kind of wife he needed, you know, just a deferential, you know, quiet girl, you know, effectively. And of course, she's being coached to behave this way. She's being coached not only by Juana, but also by her mom. Catherine is very, Catherine de Medici is very involved in this marriage (laughs) from afar. And she's teaching Elizabeth, you know, how she should behave, what she should wear, you know, how she should speak to, uh, to her husband so that she behaves the right way. And it works. I mean, to Elizabeth and and maybe Catherine's credit, Elizabeth gets on Philip's good side. So proof of this is that Elizabeth struggles with barrenness the same way that Catherine does, which is really, really horrible. She has a number of miscarriages. Elizabeth also seems to be chronically ill. So so there's, you know, she she just is not, not in good health. You know, there's no evidence that she's going to, you know, have a child successfully for many years. But then she does get pregnant and she miscarries. And the the miscarriage was horrible, actually. But both Philip and Elizabeth seemed to take a lot of encouragement from the very fact that she had gotten pregnant. And after that, Philip just starts to pay all sorts of attention to her. (laughs) They're always together. They take picnics. They take walks. You know, there's just a lot of togetherness in a way that to us seems quite romantic. And then when, you know, she does get pregnant and she carries that baby to term, he is in the birthing chamber with her. This is really unusual. And supposedly he gives her this potion, this this painkiller, you know, that Catherine has sent, you know, the recipe, uh, she sent the recipe. He gives it to her himself and she's he's with her, you know, when the baby is born. So again, this seems like a much more sort of modern type Mm. of marriage, you know, and husband than we're used to hearing. And certainly totally different than what we normally hear of Philip II. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I I will say that Philip II, so he and Elizabeth only had daughters, but he was very, very attached to those daughters, you know, for the rest of his life. So again, I think that's sort of evidence of what he felt about their mother. Yeah. She was... A stepmother, basically, to somebody who she was nearly married to. But she seemed to be a good stepmother. She was very empathetic because he did have his own challenges. Oh, yes. So Don Carlos, poor Don Carlos, he's another, you know, figure from history that has just been completely vilified. Mm. But he was really suffering, probably for some physical disabilities, but certainly also some intellectual and emotional disabilities. It's always impossible to know how someone might be diagnosed today. That boy really needed a lot of help, and and he didn't get it. He was the same age as Elizabeth, so she was his stepmother, but in many ways they were friends. And he was always, you know, Don Carlos supposedly wasn't always nice to the women in his orbit, but he was always incredibly generous and kind and polite to Elizabeth. And I actually think that they were friends. And so when Don Carlos eventually, he's imprisoned by his father. And then when he eventually dies, Elizabeth is just distraught by the whole state of affairs. 
So it's, it's actually very, very sad. And I wish we knew even more about that friendship. Yeah. Because I think it would shed light, a lot of light on the characters of both of them mm. if we knew more, but we don't, unfortunately. Yeah. I always kind of see that friendship as proof of, yes, she was kind of a coach, but it, of how empathetic she was as a person and how gentle she was as a person. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You never hear about any disability, any of Don Carlos's disabilities in any of Elizabeth's correspondence about him. She never talks about it. Yeah. Whereas other people definitely did. Yeah. How is Philip when Elizabeth finally passes away? Because she passes away very young. Very young, yes. In Well, effectively childbirth or complications due to pregnancy. Oh, he's, he's, he's just distraught. He isolates himself. And it was just a few months after the death of Don Carlos, too. And even though on some level, Philip was responsible for that death, he is, he's destroyed by it because Don Carlos was his son and heir, right? And Mm -hmm. he doesn't understand why Don Carlos was the way he was. He thinks God is punishing him. There's this internal battle. And then soon after that, Elizabeth dies and they're only the, you know, the baby girls, you know, who are there. And so I think that he's just distraught. Now, again, there is this sort of stoic nature to Philip. You know, and and pretty soon he does contract another marriage. Eventually he marries his niece, another creepy, <laughs> another <laughs> creepy thing, and of Austria. So, so he goes back to these sort of Habsburg alliances. Elizabeth was unusual in that way because she was a Valois. Um, yeah. And the Habsburgs kind of like to marry other Habsburgs. Eventually, Philip does go back to, to another Habsburg. And it is Anna of Austria who will have the baby boy who will inherit Philip's throne. And again, that seemed to be a good marriage, but, you know, he's marrying again for political reasons, but that doesn't mean that he, you know, wasn't mourning the death of Elizabeth. Yeah. Could you say that Elizabeth was the love of his life? I think the love of his life were his daughters. Can I say that? I mean, I really do, you know, partially because, you know, again, I feel like our, our modern standards of romance don't quite apply he did love Elizabeth. He, he was very affectionate with her, but he was displeased when the second baby that she had was another girl. If she had continued to have only girls, that would have been a problem. Yeah. So we don't know if whatever emotional bond they had would have withstood, mm. you know, that. So so I, I don't necessarily want to say, you know, it was that she was the love of his life in the way that we would think of today, because yeah. I, I just think almost nothing can withstand politics, you know, at the time. <laughs> that is why, that is why Don Carlos and Philip mm-hmm. develop the relationship, the very antagonistic relationship that they do. It's because even though Don Carlos was Philip's son, Philip has to inhabit the role of king before he can inhabit the role of father. And I think the same thing is true with these royal marriages. When Philip was married to all of his wives, did he take mistresses? Yes, he did. The famous mistress was Anna Mendoza during the, when he was married to Elizabeth of Valois, he was also sleeping reputedly with Anna Mendoza. And, you know, if people are familiar with the 16th century and 16th century Spain, you've probably seen a portrait of Anna Mendoza. She was incredibly good looking and she had this eye patch because I think she was blind in one eye, which of course, you know, just made her totally mysterious and all the all the sex more sexy. So um, so he was sleeping with her. And so when K 
Catherine was really concerned about the fact that Elizabeth hadn't hadn't gotten pregnant yet, she started paying off all the women who were supposedly sleeping with Philip, you know, to stay out of his bed. <laughs> you know, Catherine was very involved. <laughs> so, you know, she sent Anna a diamond and that seems to have done the trick. So we can't yeah. possibly say that Anna loved Philip then because that was easy. You know, I say, you know, like take love out of the equation here. You know, <laughs> like the, it's all about power and influence. It really is, yeah. right? It's about yeah. career in, in some ways. It has to be. Here's a 20. <laughs> you have a headache today. Yes, okay. it's a headache because it's, you know, a good time of the month for my daughter. <laughs> right. We don't exactly know what the exact deal was right yeah. if it was only a few weeks out of the year that she had to stay away or so was there a schedule that you know philip's sex <sighs> schedule or something and catherine would go I... okay so this person's out for that night elizabeth has a chance yay let's go you know what if there was one catherine definitely tried to figure out what it was you know she wanted to know everything she yeah. wanted to know everything and she knew a lot I'd love to see her Google spreadsheet. Oh, the Google spreadsheets yes. must have been. She off would the have charts. been yes, using Excel and Google spreadsheets for sure. You know, she there are ten volumes of Catherine's correspondence that were transcribed and printed in the 19th century. I mean, she was a paper and pen person. She left nothing to you know memory. She completely would have had everything worked out by spreadsheet. She would have had multiple calendars. <laughs> you know, multiple assistants to keep track of this, you know, she she was a force. Yeah. The Valois were succeeded by Henry IV of France, i.e. André IV. His youngest daughter, Henrietta Maria, married the freshly minted king of England, Scotland and Ireland, Charles I. Let's see how did that go. So we're going to talk about Charles and Henrietta. The thing about her is there's so many names. So she's called Henrietta Marie... But then she's also called Henrietta Maria. And then she was known as Queen Mary in her day. Right. And I don't think she liked that. She did not. <laughs> and in fact, in one service early on, she was prayed for as Queen Henry. So <laughs> she, <laughs> she had a number of names, but she, I think, did prefer Henrietta Maria mm -hmm. or Mariah. She liked the full thing. Quick question. Is it true that the state of Maryland is uh, named after her? Yes, it is. And that's funny because Charles wanted her to be Queen Mary. And that was sort of a gesture. I'll name this new area for you. She didn't really like that. But yeah, Maryland doesn't really. They they figure they were named after Mary the first or something. But no, they were named after Henrietta. State of Maryland, Henrietta Maria. Yes, it's funny. It is confusing to be fair. Yes. <laughs> you would assume if you were named after this like English queen, you would be named after Mary, being called Maryland, but no, no. No. No, no. Henrietta. Henrietta. <laughs> at the very beginning of the Charles's decision to get married, he's not going to marry her to begin with. He's actually meets her the very first time he meets her, he's on his way to marry somebody else or propose marriage to somebody else. Can you tell us about, about that? It all happens for political reasons. She is from France. And so it's not, if you marry her, you're sort of marrying France. And that's making a commitment that he's, you know, that's not the commitment he's looking to make, but that's the commitment 
that his government wants him to make. And yet the people aren't really happy with her. So it's very political. You see often in the royals, not just him, but others as well, they don't necessarily marry the person they're supposed to marry, or sometimes they have sort of a secret thing going on and they consider it a marriage. So, but he is expected to marry the political person. And she, at the moment, ticks the buttons, ticks the boxes for the politics. And so he is expected to marry her. She's young at the time when she comes over and she's not, I don't think she's happy about it either. So you have these two people coming together, both being sort of pushed into it for political reasons. She immediately loses her whole French French entourage. And when she writes to a friend in some letters that have been fairly recently uncovered, she describes her early time in England feeling like a prison because her friends have been taken away. She's told where to go, what to do, do this, do that, dress like this, do this. And she feels like at 15, you know, you're a little dramatic, but that's how it felt to her was like a prison. And he didn't want to be married to her. So he was not initially very kind either. And the Duke of Buckingham, who had all this power, sent all her friends away and put his friends and his mistress into her household. So he's calling the shots and he's stacking her household with people who can report what she does to him. Their loyalty is to him. So people who were loyal to her, her friends gone, her husband not interested, and the people who around her feel like spies. So yeah, you'd feel like you were in prison. It's a very sad start. And she doesn't get a coronation because she's Catholic. (laughs) Yeah. It's awkward. Yeah. Yeah. And so she's viewed as dangerous Mm -hmm. because of her religion to the government, to the Protestant government. And within Parliament, which is primarily, well, well, which is Parliament, is Protestant. I mean, they've made it legally impossible to be in Parliament if you're Catholic. But even within that, there is this team of Puritans who are very extreme and see her from the start as very dangerous. So, no, you can't be crowned. They don't accept her religion. She can very quietly practice just a little, but publicly, no. So she can't be crowned. She's the enemy. And while she and the king are not getting along, it's an irritant. But once the two of them start getting along and the children start coming because she's Catholic, now that's a really serious threat. They've worked really hard to make sure no Catholic is ever going to get on the English throne. And now her children might be Catholic. There's a really good chance of that. Even if they have a law that says they can't be, once that child takes the throne, who knows what's going to happen? So they are seen, she in particular, and she's made into a scapegoat. There's a pamphlet written as they're becoming close and she and the king began begin to share interests. One of the interests they have is the theater. So he puts on masks, just, I mean, James the first also, his father always also loved masks. So these masks are performed little plays at court. It's a very close environment. It's not a public performance, very private performance. And Henrietta Maria performed. 
herself. And so one of the Protestants writes a pamphlet about how any woman who would perform in a mask is obviously a whore. And it's this scathing pamphlet. Clearly, he's aiming for her. Even if he doesn't name her, it's known that she performs. So he's going for her, which makes Charles protective of her. That actually brings them closer. So she's really despised for her religion, but it's bringing them closer, which makes him even more sympathetic to the Catholic cause, which is also irritating parliaments, <laughs> which is, you know, sort of are poking each other's buttons in really terrible that become very dangerous and violent ways. Mm. Yeah, that backfired. When can we see the two of them start to get really close? Well, it's around the time that their son is born. So when she comes over, the Duke of Buckingham really has the king's ear. And he has a number of enemies. Buckingham has made all kinds of enemies in the reign of James I. And Charles keeps him on and he has a lot of enemies. And when and he describes himself, Buckingham describes himself as the king's lover. We don't know exactly what that means, but he certainly has the king's ear And when he is murdered, not at all by Henrietta Marie or any of her people, but he's made so many enemies. So once he's out of the way, the king and queen do become closer. And their first son is born in 1630. And from then on, we see a real closeness. She's given him an heir, which is her main job. But they also, in addition to having more children, there's another son born, there are daughters born. So they're growing this family. But they start sharing interests. So in the 1630s, we see them, um, they share an interest in art. And she's bringing over these artists. She's from a very sophisticated court. And so she's the one that gets Van Dyke to come over and he paints her and he paints Charles and this interest in the art. And she really starts being a patron of the theater. So he has these masks. And so as their interests are growing together, When they travel together to Europe, they are so popular. Um, They are these glamorous, sophisticated. They just really enjoy. So in France, they're like the it couple. And in England, they're very unpopular because of her Catholicism. So they are really hanging together in England. It's sort of you and me, our little family against the world almost. And we see this through the 1630s and into the 40s, as things are getting more difficult between Charles and Parliament, Charles and Henrietta Maria are growing closer and closer, and she is really a big support for him. Do we have any letters or anything that shows their love to each other and how close they were? Well, I think the sharing of the arts, the patronage of the arts does show that. The fact that they are now traveling together, that wasn't always happening before. Um, Mm -hmm. Political trips, you don't necessarily in those days take your spouse with you. You often take a mistress with you or have a mistress over there, but they are traveling together. And that shows their closeness. They're working on these art projects together. And he is allowing her more and more latitude. So now she's choosing her own court and she is filling it with Catholics. And that's not supposed to be happening. So he's allowing her more and more. The the amount of what we would call political power that she might have, that's 
that's not exactly clear, but certainly her ability to practice her religion. And this was a huge deal in England through the end of the Tudor reign with Elizabeth I and Mary, Queen of Scots, and then the war with Spain when Spain said, we'll just invade England and make them Catholic again. And then the gunpowder plot during the reign, which didn't happen, but James I was able to use that to enact some really anti-Catholic legislation. And Charles is allowing his wife to sort of sidestep some of that and to have um, a much more public way to practice her religion. She renovates a church close to Somerset House, and it's still a small church, but it's so elaborate when she redoes it and she has this grand opening and she's getting quite public about the practicing of her religion. That could not happen if he didn't want it. Hmm. So we, we see a good relationship between the two of them because they're sharing things and he's allowing her to be more and more her own self. She doesn't have to hide her Catholicism. It's causing problems with his government, but she is very supportive of him against the government. And when the government pushes back, she's like cheerleader for the king. You're the king. You tell them what to do. So we really see him supporting each other in a way that indicates there's a real relationship there. Yeah. So how many children do they have and how were they as parents? They they were, and I don't have the number of, because some of the children don't live, mm-hmm. but they do have, it turns out to be the next two monarchs. So those are the, those two sons are really the important. They also have a daughter, Henrietta. And so those are the children who live and then go with them yeah. into the next part of her life. But their children you know, her son and then another son and then a daughter. This really represents the future. And she is very involved in their education, as is the king. They seem to have a very warm family. You know, we don't really know what happens behind closed doors, but they are together. They are at least presenting this family picture and Again, she's encouraging him when Parliament and those Puritans in Parliament are pushing back. She's saying, here's the future of the country. We have the future. You just push back against them. As tensions get higher, as we go into the early 1640s, he sends her and the children out of England for a while. So that doesn't mean he's sending them away because he doesn't like them or anything. He's trying to keep them safe. They go to The Hague to be safe. And also, while in Europe, she is freely able to be raising money and trying to get foreign troops to support him as things go at the start of those civil wars in England. So she is, it's very important to him. She is selling some of the crown jewelry for him to pay troops to fight on his behalf against parliament. Parliament's furious. Those don't belong to you. They belong to the country, but she's selling them. So she's working very hard for him. And I don't think there's any chance a political spouse who was only in it for the politics would be taking those kinds of chances. Yeah. And she's actually sometimes when she goes back to England to be with him, she comes under fire. She has a bad reputation for starting the Civil War or being behind a lot of things that Charles has done wrong. 
how accurate would you say that is? Well, I actually think the path to the English Civil Wars started long before we get to her. When James VI of Scotland came down to be James I of England, he did not have a particularly good relationship with Parliament as his reign went on. It became a fight for power. And it's under James that we first get this sense of divine right of kings, that the king is in charge thanks to God's choice. And that certainly carried into his son. Charles was probably even less adept than his father at getting along with Parliament. So that relationship was kind of on a collision course before Henrietta Maria really came into the picture with any influence. I do think she supported him so much that that belief that he should be the one making all the decisions and Parliament owed it to him. I think that may have kind of strengthened his spine and made him more likely to do it. I don't think that means it's her fault, though. Hmm. He believed he had the right and Parliament owed it to him. She supported him in that belief. And she did help him be as successful as he was. She did raise money for him from Catholics and she did raise foreign troops for him. So, yes, she helped him. But I don't think it was her fault in any way. I think he was as successful as he was in part because of her. Yeah, I feel like she would have had his back, but he probably made the decision. Yes, right, right. And I really think the Stuarts were on that course from his yeah. father on. I mean, they they weren't too impressed with the idea of Parliament having power. And Parliament had gained quite a bit of power over the Tudor regime. So they didn't want to give it back. So, yeah. When Charles comes to his end, how did she take it? She was not with him. She had come back from The Hague and she'd gotten to be with him in Oxford. He'd set up sort of an alternate court in Oxford and they did spend some time together But she had to be separated again and went to Paris, in fact, because it was so dangerous. And the reports say, and I'm looking at some, that she was devastated by his death. Now, interestingly, England says, "Okay, no more kings, right? Charles is gone. We're going to have a republic. Scotland does not agree with that. And so as far as Henrietta Maria was concerned, her son immediately became Charles II of Scotland. Now, she also believed he was really Charles II of England. She was devastated by the death of her husband. All reports say that. So she starts sort of focusing on her son. She is continuing to work to restore them to the monarchy. Her oldest son, Charles, who becomes Charles II, there is some disagreement between them. He does not spend the entire time of what's sometimes called the Commonwealth or the Interregnum with her, her younger son and her daughter, Henry, her daughter, Henrietta, spend time. So James and Henrietta are with Henrietta Maria during that period of time. So they are together. Charles actually goes to Cologne. So he is considered king of Scotland. He's in Cologne. She stays in France with her other two children. But she is continuing to support the idea of restoring her children to the throne. Charles II, when he gets on the throne, is there any push from his mother to uh, avenge his father or anything like that? Well, he was determined to avenge his father. So Mm -hmm. Parliament (laughs) invites him to come back. And they kind of have to come up with a deal. 
because Parliament doesn't want him to come back and wipe them all out. So he comes back and takes on certain people, the ones who were directly involved in his father's death, Oliver Cromwell, who has died. His body is exhumed and he is executed as a traitor after death with the whole, you know, traitor's death, cut off the head, hang drawn quarter, all of that um, to the dead body. So he gets that revenge, but it's limited by parliament. So they're inviting him back saying you can have this much revenge, but not the whole of parliament kind of thing. There are a lot of questions about how Catholic Charles II may or may not have been. And that was another thing his mother really wanted to lean into that. He kind of played both sides because, again, Parliament had invited him back. So he came back having agreed to live in a particular way. But he died without children. So Henry and Maria's other son, James, then comes to the throne and very much has leaned all the way into Catholicism by then. So she does get, if you might want to call it her way, her two sons both take the throne. And James certainly is very Catholic. Now, because of that and some other reasons, but certainly Catholicism is a part of why he is chased out. And William of Orange and Mary, his daughter, is invited to take over and get the Protestant line going again. But, you know, you do see that influence of Henrietta Maria through her two sons as well Mm. as her husband. A great thank you to Nathan, Leia and Caroline for joining us today. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in and catching this episode of If It Ain't Baroque podcast. Like, subscribe, and share with your friends. Your support means a lot to us, truly. You can find us on social media with the handle If It Ain't Baroque Podcast or If It Ain't Baroque History. For more history fodder, please see ifitaintbaroque.art and drainoflondon.com.